We are back. You know, I should have mentioned one other quote, one other epic quote of uh, 2007 at the top of the show. At the uh, Bali conference on dealing with global warming, the, the most notable quote came from the Papua New Guinea delegate. Tired of all the obstructionism that was generated by uh, America's representative to that meeting, the delegate shouted at uh, U.S. Delegate Paula Dobriansky, if you don't want to take the lead, at least don't get in our way. He got a standing ovation. And it is sad to note that after two weeks of, uh, of, of negotiating, 187 countries agreed to negotiate a treaty on cutting greenhouse gas emissions over the next two years. Unfortunately, at the insistence of the U.S. representative, there were two key concessions that were made. It dropped the Europeans' call for developed countries to make cuts in emissions of at least 25% and substituted language instead calling for unspecified deep cuts. should be noted, too, that the U.S. delegation was frequently booed. Noted the New York Times, how disappointing. If the U.S. had provided the leadership the world needs, the Bali conference could have brought important progress on climate change. Instead, the obstructionist Bush administration delegates did little but agree to further talks, and it took enormous efforts to pry even that tiny concession out of them. Well, I just want to say in this upcoming election year, one does hope that we will get a new administration that is not uh, filled with scientific illiterates who will continue to instruct political hacks to rewrite scientific papers. All right, and in 2007, two uh, would-be assassins were released from prison. We talked about Arthur Bremer earlier in the year, the man that, uh, that shot Governor George Wallace in 1972 and ended his quest for the presidency. And it was last week that Sarah Jane Moore, the woman who tried to shoot Gerald Ford on his visit to San Francisco in 1975, was let out of prison after serving over three decades. The story of Sarah Jane Moore is one I don't know very well, but what I do know leaves me scratching my head at the usual bizarre connections to all sorts of strange figures that, you know, never really got investigated very well. But there is a very strange uh, side story to that issue of, of Sarah Jane Moore's attempt on Jerry Ford that I think I'll take a couple of minutes just to talk about. Sarah Jane Moore had, uh, had Jerry Ford staked out in front of the St. Francis Hotel. She had a 38 caliber revolver in her purse, which she'd purchased that very day. And on that same day, as it would happen, a man named Bill Sipple was walking down the street and asked what the crowd was in front of the St. Francis and was told that the President Ford was inside and would be coming out soon. So Bill Sipple stopped his walk to Fisherman's Wharf and decided to hang around and see if he could get a glimpse of the President. Sipple was 33 years old, and he was an ex-Marine. When Ford and his entourage exited the St. Francis, Sarah Jane Moore reached in, grabbed her pistol, and pointed it at President Ford. When Bill Sipple noticed that she'd pulled out a gun, his instincts went to work. He shouted, gun, as loud as he could, and grabbed Moore's arm just as the gun went off. The bullet went wide of the mark, ricocheted off a wall, and hit a cab driver, who was not seriously injured. The president's security detail went into motion, and he was shoved into a car by his aide, none other than Donald Rumsfeld. Now, it turned out that Bill Sipple's uh, heroic actions may have saved the president that day. Sipple himself had been wounded in Vietnam and had suffered some psychological difficulties afterwards and apparently drank. And unfortunately for Mr. Sipple, a third person involved in the saga, besides Sarah Jane Moore and Gerald Ford, would change his life. Turned out 
Harvey Milk knew Bill Sipple and knew that he was gay. Milk then leaked the information to the San Francisco Chronicle, who in turn outed Sipple in his newspaper two days after the assassination attempt. Milk was proud of what he did, saying, maybe this will help break the stereotype of gay people. As it happened, newspapers across the country picked up on the story, which was slugged as the homosexual hero. Sipple subsequently commented, my sexuality is a part of my private life and has no bearings on my response to the act of a person seeking to take the life of another. I am first and foremost a human being who enjoys life and respects life. Unfortunately for Mr. Sipple, his family in Detroit did not know that he was gay. His strict Baptist parents stopped talking to their newly outed homosexual son, and the last words he ever heard from his mother were something to the effect that she could not step out of her house in Detroit because of the throngs of reporters asking questions about her son being gay. In spite of Sipple doing a heroic thing, doing the right thing, uh, all he got out of this incident in the end was a lot of heartache. He was suffering from post-traumatic stress as it was with his strict Baptist parents no longer speaking to him. He turned ever more to alcohol. He sued the newspapers that had outed him and lost. The court cases drug on until 1984. The LA Times at one point was quoted from one of the cases as saying, reporting his connections to the gay community presented information contrary to the stereotype of homosexuals as lacking vigor. Harvey Milk would go on to become uh, the first openly gay elected official in California. Bill Sipple uh, took to drinking more heavily, gained weight, ballooning up to about 300 pounds, and, and would die in 1989 at the age of 47. Anyway, I know it's a sad story, but it's one uh, that I think needed to be told. Bill Sipple certainly deserved better, and it's an example of what happens when, uh, you know, an invasion of one's privacy gets a little out of hand. All right. Um, You know, in 2008, we're going to have to deal with some issues, I think, that uh, just need a second look. One such issue, nuclear power. Sometime later in January, we expect to speak with Greneth Cravens, the author of Power to Save the World, The Truth About Nuclear Energy. And while we don't know whether nuclear power plants uh, indeed have the, the power to save the world, we sort of doubt that, As a stopgap measure until we can get nuclear fusion or other alternative methods which still don't seem to be able to pull their weight, until we get those on board, there seems to this correspondent to be a role for nuclear power. Perhaps you disagree, but I expect to have a very interesting talk with author Gwyneth Cravens in the weeks to come. At some point, we're going to also try and tackle the the issue of illegal immigration, one which everyone seems to be running away from. Those on the left seem to wring their hands and say, my goodness, these poor people, what are we going to do? They need jobs. And those on the right who want to then say, no, no, these people have to all be sent back to wherever they came from. We have to stiffen the borders, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, they're employing them in every capacity. I'd say on this issue, the conservatives in this country are are the most hypocritical people uh, since bootleggers were preaching against alcohol back in Prohibition. Another issue that's not going the way that we have to address is that of world overpopulation. The world is expected to hit uh, 8 billion people by 2025. The impacts on marginal environments all over the world are hideous. 
In fact, according to the Atlantic Monthly last month, as the poor in Africa and Asia move into cities, the population of urban slums throughout the world has grown to one billion. Of the children expected to be born in 2008, it's estimated that one in three will be born in a slum. It brings me great sadness to note that none of the main environmental lobbying groups in this country will mention the obvious fact that uh, the main contributor to environmental degradation around the world is too damn many people. The resources on this planet are finite. If our population continues to grow as if we're going to do so uh, indefinitely, well, it seems pretty inescapable that uh, the pressures on the natural environment are only going to get much, much worse. So we ask, why is it that no one on the left or the right or the middle seems to want to address the realities of this? Well, in the months to come, we're going to try and tackle it. All right, here's something else we need to talk about in, in the year to come, and I'm sure we will. Uh, I wanted to quote from an article by Jaron Lanier in the New York Times from last uh, November. Jaron Lanier is a computer scientist, and he noted uh, in the paper that I was wrong. As one of the early developers of the Internet, I was always telling creative people who feared that the Internet would rob them of their livelihoods that they should stop whining and figure out how to join the party. The Warriors, it turned out, had a point. Because there's an almost religious belief in Silicon Valley that charging for content is bad. Few writers and artists are able to make a living on the Internet. Instead, heavy hitters such as Google, Yahoo, and Facebook assemble content from unpaid Internet users to sell advertising to other Internet users. The companies rake in big bucks while creative people go unpaid. The creative types can't get out of this bind alone. They need the help of geeks like me. If software engineers and internet evangelists can design a system geared to absolutely free content, they can also design information systems so that people can pay for content. It won't be easy, but we owe it to ourselves and to our creative friends to acknowledge the negative results of our old idealism. Information may want to be free, but artists quite reasonably want to get paid. All right, and on a lighter note, how how about the FBI reopening the case of D.B. Cooper? 36 years after after a guy parachutes with $200,000 in ransom money, the FBI has decided to reopen the case. They're going to spend more than $200,000 in the case in about the first six weeks. Anyway, we were quite swayed by a story that came out in 2000 about the possible identity of the mysterious air hijacker. Let me quote from Uncle John's fast-acting, long-acting bathroom reader. That was number. That was in the 18th edition. In August 2000, a Florida widow told U.S. News and World Report that her husband was D.B. Cooper. Joe Weber claimed that shortly before his death in 1995, her husband Dwayne told her, "I'm Dan Cooper." Later, she remembered he talked in his sleep about jumping out of an airplane. She checked into his background and discovered he'd spent time in prison near Portland, Oregon then found an old Northwest Airlines ticket stub from the Seattle-Tacoma airport among his papers. She found a book about D.B. Cooper in the local library, and it had notations in the margins matching her husband's handwriting. As I recall, Dwayne Weber also had a lot of experience with parachutes. According to Uncle John's, when Joe Weber relayed her suspicions to the FBI, their chief investigator uh, was impressed. To this day, Ralph Himmelsbach insists that Weber was one of the likeliest suspects he's come across. 
and apparently facial recognition software was used to find the closest match to the composite picture of D.B. Cooper. Of the 3,000 photographs used, Dwayne Weber's was identified as the best match. We're going to have to explore that matter with our aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zarevika. Perhaps you remember Vlado telling us uh, last year about how when he flies uh, Boeing 727s, which was, which was the plane used in the, the, uh, the Dan Cooper or D.B. Cooper um, event, they have a special locking mechanism, which means you can't lower the back stairway and thus parachute off the back of the aircraft. And I, I think they're called the D.B. Cooper device, the locking mechanism. Anyway, if you listen to this program regularly, and, and we hope you do, you, you know that we just, we just love stories like this. So we'll, we'll visit it again. All right, another story we liked, and trying to look back at 2007, I found an article from 2006. It was from the publication of the Sierra Club. Sierra Magazine was talking about some of the most anti-environmental members of the U.S. Congress. Noting, uh, not coincidentally, they appeared to be some of the most ethically challenged members of Congress. I did note that at the bottom of the barrel, according to the Sierra Club, were three people. Representative Tom DeLay, strike one. Representative Richard Pombo, strike two. And Representative John Doolittle. Also on the list, Representative Randy Duke Cunningham, now serving time in the federal pen. Yay! Oh, and speaking of the FBI, as we were in passing a moment ago... How about this year-end article by Tim Weiner in the New York Times about uh, J. Edgar Hoover? Evidently, newly declassified documents show that J. Edgar Hoover, the longtime director of the FBI, he led the organization from 1824, oh, I'm sorry, 1924 to 1972, had a plan to suspend habeas corpus and imprison 12,000 Americans that he suspected of disloyalty. J. Edgar sent this plan to the White House uh, 12 days after the Korean War began, and it envisioned putting Americans in military prisons. Hoover wanted President Harry Truman to proclaim the mass arrests necessary to protect the country against treason, espionage, and sabotage. What a guy! And as far as we know, there is no truth to the rumor that Harvey Milk at any point outed J. Edgar Hoover. And how about this revelation from the Department of Justice that didn't get a whole lot of ink? White House lawyers, including then-White House counsel Alberto Gonzalez, participated in deliberations over destroying tapes of CIA interrogations of terrorist suspects. That was something the New York Times discovered just last week. The Bush White House had been trying to distance itself from the tape controversy by saying there was little White House input in the matter. This matter is alleged to be under investigation by the Justice Department. Our new Attorney General, Michael Mukasey, last week refused a congressional request that he appoint a special prosecutor. And anyway, why would you? This isn't nearly as important as whether the president had sexual relations with a White House intern. But I digress. Anyway, I like the section of the Sacramento Bee, uh, In History Spotlight, what they look back at uh, people who made the headlines in the past century and a half. I saved a clipping from the story of Walter Christensen, former Sacramento mayor. Evidently, it was he whose efforts to rejuvenate downtown earned him the nickname Father of the K Street Mall. Said the B, Christensen was remembered as the city council member who perhaps fought hardest to develop the pedestrian mall. Although the mall built in 1969 
remains controversial, said the paper. Christensen maintained it was a great idea. And regarding the development of K Street, I wanted to quote from a letter in the Sacramento Bee. Uh, it was from a Nancy Vincent Huish. She was commenting about uh, the Bee's airing of an old uh, Herb Kane column, uh, reminiscing about his childhood in Sacramento. Wrote Nancy, As a little girl in the early 60s, I remember the magic of going downtown to shop. Who can forget Bruner's windows at Christmas and all the wonderful lights during across J and K streets, getting hot salted cashews at Woolworths? It did indeed seem to be the perfect place to live. Unfortunately, some very short-sighted, shallow-minded local shakers and movers decided in the 60s and 70s that Sacramento needed to progress. Too bad the phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, hadn't made prominence then. Which, uh, I think, summarizes that thought pretty well. Which leads us to a quotable item here from our old friend Cosmo Garvin, writing in the Sacramento News and Review. I think I'll just quote Cosmo. In March of this year, Mayor Heather Fargo gave a big speech, her annual State of the Downtown presentation. I just reread it, wanting to see what was on her to-do list for 2007. It was about what you'd expect revitalizing the 700 and 800 blocks of K Street with upscale shopping, moving the Greyhound Station, and seeing the downtown plaza reinvigorated. Explained the mayor, we will go over, under, and straight through obstacles to get this done. Period. She could reuse the speech next year, since the stuff didn't get done. Period. Maybe she could use some of the same filler, too, as when Fargo riffed on being a baby boom mayor in a maturing city. Did you know that David Bowie turned 60 on Monday, she asked? No, I thought. Then I thought about my mom, who loves David Bowie. Sacramento's mayors have been giving some version of the same speech about downtown for more than 50 years now. That's because Sacramento's attempt at downtown rejuvenation is a baby boomer too. Just like my mom, and my mayor, and David Bowie. Continuing, what today we call the Merged Downtown Redevelopment Project area was born in 1955, the same year that Disneyland opened, and the first McDonald's. It has since grown to cover 300 acres, including, of course, K Street and the rail yards. It's blown through more than $300 million in its long life. Mr. Garvin concludes his article by saying, Anyway, here's to you, urban redevelopment. May you live another 53 years. And I'm sure you will. Ch 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 changes. <laughs> Cosmo, pretty funny stuff. If you're listening, <laughs> keep it keep it coming. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Stay tuned for our old pal Sean Mitten in segment three. Taking you nowhere Angel Look at that sky, life's begun Nights are warm and the days are young Come, brother, baby There's my baby, lost, that's all 